Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I am so excited for this conversation that I'm about to have. I'm talking with Barry Black, the chaplain of the United States Senate. Chaplain Black has written many books, but his latest book is a children's book published by Zonder Kids called A Prayer for Our Country, Words to Unite and Inspire Hope. Chaplain, welcome to the program. Thank you, Josh. It's a thrill to be with you. Now, I want to talk about the book, but I, I want to get some background first. Um, I realized when I was preparing for this interview, I don't really know much about what the day-to-day life of a Senate chaplain looks like. I know that your public-facing work uh, as to um, it has a heavy emphasis on prayer that's reflected in the book you've written, uh, but what does your work look like behind the scenes in the day-to-day? A chaplain is someone, Josh, who ministers in a pluralistic environment of religious diversity. So what that means is unlike the normal church pastor who focuses on a single denomination, if I'm a Presbyterian or a Baptist or Episcopalian, a chaplain is someone who provides, facilitates, intercedes, advises, even participates in healing for an environment that involves not simply Christian traditions, but Buddhist, Hindus, the Islamic tradition. You are facilitating for those who are not from your faith tradition by doing the things I've just said. You you provide for your own with hospital visitations, workspace visitations, Bible studies, religious education outreach, officiating at weddings and funerals and memorial services. You do the things that a pastor would do, but you facilitate for other religious traditions. You bring in a rabbi for Torah studies for your Jewish uh, 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 people. You bring in an imam for Ramadan for your Islamic people. You bring in the Dalai Lama uh, for Buddhists through your guest chaplains program or a Hindu priest through your guest chaplains program. So it is a much broader ministry uh, and it is a very exciting ministry that is done not just in the legislative branches of government, but also in the um, prisons. Uh, The Department of Justice has a prison ministry The VA has a veterans chaplains ministry, the military, all of the services have chaplains. All of these clergy persons, men and women, are providing in a setting of religious diversity. So it's not just the denominations within Christianity, but it is across the spectrum of religion. Chaplaincy is something that you've been involved with for a long time. Obviously, you have been chaplain of the U.S. Senate now for nearly 20 years, uh, but you were chief of chaplains for the U.S. Navy, I believe, before that. Um, What was it for you personally that made you feel called to this unique type of ministry? Josh, my mother informed me 
that when she was pregnant with me, she was baptized. She told me that after I manifested some spiritual precociousness, I actually liked going to church. Even as a child, four or five years of age, I enjoyed listening to the preacher, even though I didn't understand 75, 80% of the words. When I was eight and uh, my mother, who was a domestic, brought home a phonograph record she was given, it was a sermon by Peter Marshall, the 57th chaplain of the United States Senate. I memorized the sermon. I played the record repeatedly until I remember I even tried to get a little Scottish accent. The morning sun had been up for some hours over the city of David. So I memorized the sermon, not realizing that I would be the 62nd chaplain of the United States Senate. But the key was, I, I think the key sign that pushed me into 27 years in the Navy and nearly 20 years in the, um, in the Senate is I abhorred the partitions of denominationalism. And I asked, even as a child, why can't we visit other churches? We're passing by churches to walk to our own because we believe that our church is the special one when everyone is talking about this savior that we have. It was military chaplaincy and legislative chaplaincy that enabled me to breathe. When I, I pastored 11 churches in a conventional way before becoming a military chaplain. So you add that piece on to the 27 years in the Navy and the nearly 20 years in the Senate. One lady during the, uh, doing the math guessed that I was 92 years old. But the point is that that I don't like partitions. I don't like walls. I don't like silos. I don't like stovepipes. And chaplaincy permits me to minister to everyone. Hmm. I think that's even, a, even the atheists and the agnostics. Yeah. It, it's such a unique and important ministry. I feel like as we have become more insular in our faith traditions. And this is true for a number of denominations. And um, I, I, I know, I can recall that when I went to seminary, I had older relatives asking me, uh, well, what religion of seminary? And I was like, I don't, what do you mean by religion, Christian? And they're like, and then they meant no, what denomination? But to them, it held the same meaning as religion because they were so ensconced within their own faith tradition and denomination. And, um, there is definitely a need. Obviously, you're you're serving in a in a unique context, a civil context where it's not one denomination. It is a multi-denominational, multi-faith setting. Uh, you have been there almost 20 years since 2003. That's I won't say that's the most. That's definitely not the most tumultuous era of American history, but that is quite an era of American history to have been in that building for and to have presided over. Uh, the spiritual lives of so many of the men and women who have been a part of the U.S. Senate during that time. How have you seen the religious milieu change at the Capitol from the time that you became chaplain to now? I think, Josh, that 
the religious environment reflects what's going on away from Capitol Hill and away from the Washington Beltway. So where there is polarization, um, outside of the Beltway, there's polarization um, in, in, in the Capitol. Where there is uh, believing falsehood outside of, of the Capitol, there is believing falsehood um, within uh, the Capitol. Where there is exasperation with uh, events like the subprime mortgage implosion and on and on it goes, you see those same kinds of, of expressions of exasperation on Capitol Hill. So I think we call our lawmakers representatives for a reason. And that is they represent their people and they very often will reflect the same emotions that their people reflect. Mm -hmm. Prayer is something, and we're kind of getting back to the book now, prayer is something that is central to your ministry. Uh, so I think it's appropriate that your latest book is, your children's book is about prayer. It is, it is a prayer. Uh, how did the idea for this book, A Prayer for Our Country, come about? I was in the Capitol on January 6th. I watched the entire day unfold. I arrived at the Capitol at 7 a.m. on January 6th, and I left the Capitol at 5 a.m. on January 7th. Um, during that time, I had an opportunity to spend nearly four hours with senators, 90% of our senators, at an undisclosed location. I had an opportunity to pray with them and to minister to them. And at the end of the day, Vice President Pence asked me to close the entire uh, Senate session with a prayer. And in that prayer, I talked about uh, what we had experienced that day, the shedding of innocent blood, the loss of life, the quagmire of dysfunction, um, the threats to a democratic process, and an editor from Zondervan Kids, <laughs> and no doubt an insomniac, was listening and watching and said to herself, we need to help our children learn to pray for their country as this chaplain is praying for our country. Now, I've always had a passion for children. My mother taught me how to pray. So I got a call from Jonathan Kids asking me, would I be interested in doing something like that? And I was enthusiastically interested. And that's how I ended up uh, writing the book, A Prayer for Our Children. One of the primary motivations was something Billy Graham once said. He said, we are one generation away from agnosticism. In other words, if we don't teach our children a way to connect with the transcendent, with God, we are 
one generation away from no memory of God's mighty acts in our history. No George Washington in the snow of Valley Forge, no Benjamin Franklin at the Constitutional Convention saying, scripture says, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, Psalm 127, or Franklin at that same convention, quoting from the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, he said, I'm an old man, but I believe that if a sparrow cannot fall without God knowing it, that a republic cannot rise without his aid. And so I believe we should pray about this. And they invited in clergy after, as you could expect it, interminable debate, they invited in a clergy person to begin to pray on a regular basis. So the idea of the conception came after that horrific experience on January 6th, and then an opportunity offered me by one of the editors from Zonovan Kids. Hmm. That's so interesting because I obviously, right now we're in the middle of the January 6th hearings. And while I had you on here, I wanted to ask you about your experience uh, on that day. And um, I also wanted to ask you what you felt like at this prayer, obviously, you know, you're, you're writing it for a children's book context, but as I was reading it, um, you know, you can, you can read it and see what children will take from it. Uh, but you can also read it and see what adults can take from mm-hmm. it as well. It, it's, it's not a children's book. It is a book that is by a children's publisher. Uh, but this is, you know, it, it's not a childish prayer, uh, mm-hmm. but it is a prayer. And I think we direct it toward children and it, there's this aura of hope uh, mm-hmm. and the sense that, that the next generation can do better. Uh, well, it, Josh, it's a primer for children. I think the ages, we're looking at an age group of probably four to eight or nine. And it's, it's trying to help them to see that prayer is a conversation with God, that if you can talk to a parent, you can talk to God. So the book opens up acknowledging the power and the might of an eternal God. Then it turns to gratitude as a critical part of prayer. We teach our children to say thank you. Well, there's a Bible verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, that says pray without ceasing. Prayer is the only thing we're told to do continuously. And the next verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 says, in everything give thanks. So we, we start modeling that for the child to thank you for the trees, thank you for the songs of birds, so that children can see nature as a way of connecting with the sovereign God of the universe. Then a critical part of the book is to learn to pray for others and to see what theologians call the imago Dei, the image of God in every human being, and to begin to pray for other human beings as if they are a part of the human family because they are. So we are, even as in the Our Father, Jesus gave his disciples an outline for praying. He did not give them, this is all you have to say, just pray it by rote and you're fine. No, these are the hooks that give you an opportunity 
to have a conversation with God. So that when I pray the Our Father, and, and that's a great way to teach children how to pray, um, the Our Father, it takes me usually 10 minutes or so to get past Our Father. I grew up with an absentee father. The only father I have known in a continuous and substantive way has been my father in heaven. And as I praise him and talk about the traps he helped me avoid, the storms he brought me through, but the way he made a way out of no way, that's just the our father part. Don't let me get to the witch art in heaven. <laughs> so it takes me, you know, if I'm on a jog or something like that, 45 minute jog, I can pray, it, just be finished with the Our Father as I'm coming down the home stretch. So this is what I am hoping that these little themes in this primer will enable children to know, this is how I talk to God in a conversational way. And these are some of the hooks that I can use to prime the pump of prayer. As I was reading the book, uh, I read it through a couple of times and tried to envision myself differently each time. First time I'm reading it, trying to read it as a child. Second time I was trying to read it. How would I read this if I was a senator? Uh, what would I take away from this? And for both groups, the question that I kept coming back to and what you could do so easily with this book is if you're reading this with your child to ask them, how do you think we could help be an answer to this part of the prayer? Um, what are some things that you think we can do as human beings, as Americans, to help realize the fulfillment of this prayer for our country? Well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talked about in Matthew chapter, well, actually, it wasn't the Sermon on the Mount, but the parable in Matthew chapter 25, although he did talk about it in the Sermon on the Mount as well. And he had six questions that God asked in the judgment. Uh, and so the first thing we can do is to, if you are a believer, strive to be able to say yes to each of those questions. And the six questions were, did you feed the hungry? Did you give water to the thirsty? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit the sick? Did you minister to the incarcerated? Did you take care of the strangers? How? Is my life making an impact on those questions in providing answers to those questions? So how, how, how am I manifesting a concern for the marginalized? How am, I, how am I demonstrating empathy for the, um, the people on life's margins, the lost, the lonely, the least? My wife and I spent four days in Manhattan and there were all kinds of people asking for, uh, can you hook a brother up? Can you help this? Can you help that? And the reflex response is, I'm sorry, I don't have anything on me or I'm sorry, I don't have any change. And that's a point blank range lie <laughs> because you do uh, and you don't want to go through for whatever the reason. So it's just helping young people cultivate a sensitivity. So one part of the prayer, thanks God for the food and for family and for friends 
and then segues into, but God, there are hurting people, there are hungry people, there are helpless people, and use me to be a solution to those problems. So that's that's the key thing that we can do. And that's a way I heard Bono say it at a prayer breakfast some years ago. He said, instead of getting trying to get God on our side, why not get on his side? Why not give him what he's asking us to do? And one of the things that he asked us to do, uh, as you know, in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, he gives us one of those if-then prophecies. He says, if you want to bring healing to your land, just my folk, people called by my name. I don't need everybody. I don't care what the party affiliation is or that kind of thing. I don't care whether it's an autocracy or a democracy, okay? Um, just those called by my name, whether they're in Ukraine or whether they're in Israel, wherever, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. In other words, be fervent, fervency matters, and turn from evil. And that's the, that's the ouch, well, it was do a 180. Here's the promise. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and I love this, heal their land. So here is a strategic plan for anyone who wants to bring healing to any nation, whether it's Russia, whether any nation, believers following that strategic plan called by his name and it will happen. And we know from the story of Jonah, Jonah chapter four, a pagan king, when he heard God's gonna destroy my nation, 120,000 people in 40 days, he declared a national day of fasting and prayer. And we are gonna fast. God may not change his mind, but we're gonna fast. And God did change his mind. In fact, Jonah was upset about it in, in, in this story. So that's the key. Give God what he wants, but also stand on his promises and hold him to his promises. And basically say, God, you said if I do thus, 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 and thus, you would do this, 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 and this. And I think we would find amazing healing if we would do that. That's why we don't need stovepipes. That's why we don't need silos. We have more than 200 Protestant denominations. All of these folk called by his name. Most of them saying, I and only I have the truth. We have the truth, you know. You gotta sprinkle, you can't dip. You gotta, really, seriously? Okay, what if, Every believer just said, okay, we're going to follow that blueprint. I think you would see a national revival that would astound everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want to be careful about how I ask this next question, because basically the function of the Senate chaplain, uh, you are a court prophet of sorts. If you look at the Old Testament, we see that the prophets who worked in the system of power and the system of empire, they usually either didn't fare very well because they had to speak truth to power and oppose the empire, or they became 
puppets of empire who just kind of profess the civil religion that serve the state. For you, how do you maintain your integrity and retain that proper role of I'm a servant of God first, a servant of the state, a distant second? Uh, thanks, Jeff. Um, the first thing that I do is I strive to ensure that I maintain ethical congruence. And that simply means that I try to walk the talk. I try to live what I call an inspection proof life. When you are trying to serve, uh, particularly in government, you are scrutinized. Um, you, you, you are subjected to opposition research as Daniel was in Daniel chapter six. And Daniel had enemies who were upset that this guy from a different race is, comes into Persia and becomes essentially a prime minister. You know, there are three presidents and Daniel is number one. And then we've got to find a way to set him up. So let's just survey him. Let's, let's just follow him around. The, everyone has a skeleton in his or her closet. Some have uh, cadavers, others have bodies on life support. So, so let's, let's try. And Daniel chapter six, verse five, they, they come to this conclusion. We can find nothing against this Daniel, except it be concerning the law of his God. In other words, we have to use his failure to compromise in terms of his religion unswerving integrity to get him. And that's how they set him up for the lion's den. So that's the first thing, living in inspection proof life. The second thing that um, I strive to do is um, by the grace of God to use the example of Nathan, who was a preacher for David. And I, it's either 2 Samuel chapter 11 or 2 Samuel chapter 12, where David, Nathan pays a visit to David. He does not go into the king. You don't go into the senator. You don't go into and say, everybody's talking about the adultery and the murder that you, you know, we know about it and everything. And I thus saith the Lord. No, 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 no. You learn if someone has that kind of power, tell them a story first. <laughs> So Nathan says, says, we've got a problem in the kingdom. There's a, there's a very wealthy man, had you know, many, many sheep. And he had some guests come, hospitality, oriental hospitality, prepared that he serve him. And instead of going to his flock and taking a few sheep, he goes to a neighbor who has one little lamb, who's like a family pet. And he takes this lamb and he kills it and gives his guests lamb chops, you know, to refresh them. David is so spiritually obtuse because of his transgression. And remember, this is nearly a year later that he declares judgment on himself. This man should surely die. And then here's the courage that every preacher, even someone in the legislative branch or in the military must say in speaking the truth to power, because you've set it up that the, the commander, the senator, the admiral, has condemned himself, you are that man. And David had enough spiritual discernment that when Nathan says, can I pray for you now? David says, if it's all right, 
Can I pray for myself? Remember, David is a man after God's own heart. There are senators who have a spirituality that dwarfs mine. Okay. There are, as Paul says in Philippians 4.22, saints in Caesar's household. And David prays the 51st Psalm, penitential Psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitudes of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Purge me with hyssop, a plant that you use to sprinkle blood on the doorpost during the Passover, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Not making excuses, God, but I was born in sin, shaping in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And it hasn't been easy for me to restore unto me the joy of my salvation, my crime against you, and you only have I sinned. It's destroyed my joy, creating me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. The prayer was so powerful. Remember, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, the Bible is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. So it's Holy Spirit inspired. <laughs> I think God the Father turns to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and says, we need to put that one in the book, that prayer. So <laughs> and it ends up in the 51st Psalm. So you live an inspection-proof life, but then in speaking the truth to power, you know, don't go in with swag, you know, uh, you, you, you know work out a win-win scenario. And most of the time, if you do it the right way, the lawmaker will be convicted by the spirit. And, in, 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 you know, the conscience is bothering. You know, David said in the 32nd Psalm, when I kept silent, my bones melted within me. And he was going through that for months. And so those are two ways that I try to minister in this environment. And just an aside, when you talk to the creator of lawmakers before you even go in to the Capitol building, you're not intimidated by speaking to them because you've already had some quality time with the one who created them and created you. That's a really good answer. I'm really, yeah, that, that's very good. Uh, one more question, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Um, I'm sure you have other things to do. Uh, we've talked about that you were in the Capitol building on January 6th. Um, and then in the morning hours of January 7th, after President Biden's election was affirmed, you gave a prayer that condemned the violence, call it a threat to democracy. You spoke about the power of the tongue and how it had been used to foment that violence. And a quote from that prayer was uh, that you use us to bring healing and unity to a divided nation. We're now a year and a half past that moment. We're in the middle of congressional hearings regarding that insurrection. We are coming up on the 2022 midterm elections. What is your prayer for this nation in this current moment? My prayer is the same prayer uh, that Jesus uh, the, he made a petition, and in John chapter 17, again, he's about to ascend into heaven. He could have asked God for anything. For believers, he said, keep them in the world, but not of the world. I, I teach a Bible study to senators every week. 
I participate in a prayer breakfast with senators every week. I was in the prayer breakfast this morning. And in the prayer breakfast, the lawmaker, one of them, talks about his or her faith pilgrimage. They're saints in Caesar's household. So my prayer is, the prayer of Jesus, make them one. He, that, 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 that was his petition in John 17. Father, make them one as we are one. It's the second Chronicles 714 that we quoted. If my folk would just come together. It is no accident in Acts 2 that the spirit came when that body of believers, they were in the upper room on one accord. That's what we need for our nation. We need unity. Right now there is so much division and we can unite around a central figure, believers. We can unite around someone we love. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, okay? And he continues, I will pray the Father and he will send you another comforter, even the spirit of truth to guide you. We will be guided by that spirit, that same spirit that united a fragmented apostolic church. We forget the disciples were at one another's throats prior to the crucifixion. They were up, the, even in the upper room, the reason why, I'm not doing any feet. No, uh-uh, no, 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 really? James and John trying to set up one on the right. No, 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 no. They were upset. Why is he showing this preferential treatment to only Peter, James, and John going to Gethsemane? Yep, there it is again. That's why we can't, so it was, one would deny him three times a night. That night, the other would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. So they were in a bad, and they did not come together until that upper room experience that united them. We can have the same experience in this nation, you know, and we can see a healing that will make America what John Witherspoon declared it should be and what Ronald Reagan used to talk about so often, a shining city on a hill. Amen. Amen. Well, again, the book is A Prayer for Our Country, Words to Unite and Inspire Hope. It's Bill is a children's book, but really it's a book for anyone who's trying to find the words to pray for our nation and for everything that it's doing, who wants a better future for our country, for our families. Uh, thank you, Chaplain Black, for your time. Thank you for your ministry. Uh, you occupy a very unique and difficult position. And my prayers are with you as you guide our leaders spiritually during this time. Don't forget the grandchildren either. <laughs> a lot of our lawmakers have copies for the grandchildren. And that's a great We need children, grandchildren, great-grands if you've been blessed to live that long. Thank you so much, Josh. And it was a, an absolute pleasure being with you.